Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 this morning for our word. Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79. This is John the Baptist, his father, before John was born, speaking of the ministry of John the Baptist. So this is all in line in preparation with uh, the advent, the coming of Messiah. So let's hear from God's word. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunshine shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Lord, your word is holy, your word is true. And Lord, by it, we ask that you would sanctify us this morning. Lord, please make us ready to receive your word. Please make make us not only hearers, but doers this morning. Lord, may the word implanted bear much fruit in our lives. Lord, we know that only your Holy Spirit can do this. So we pray we would not quench or grieve your spirit, Lord, through disobedience or apathy, Lord, but that we would tune our hearts to be worshipers and doers of your word, your son, Jesus Christ, this morning. Lord, please give help to my mouth to speak only that which is true. Uh, Give help to us, Lord, to to be um, recipients and receivers and believers this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going through a five-part series on Advent, which is the preparation, the coming of the Messiah. It's, it's a Christmas theme, no doubt, we, but we could do this at any time of year uh, because it is the coming and the anticipation of the Son of God. And our Bibles give us much material to discuss and to understand regarding the coming of God's Messiah. So last week was part one. It already feels like we're deeper into it for some reason. Um, Maybe it's because it was a long sermon. I don't know. But uh, we looked last week at part one, which is that question, who will reverse the curse? And the reason we began with that is because the curse is the first thing to show up in terms of humanity's problem in the book of Genesis. And so we see a curse placed on Adam and Eve when they choose to rebel against God as a result of the temptation of Satan. And as a result, we see the curse... um, it infects and corrupts mankind's flourishing for generations in the reproduction of children and in the tilling of the ground, which is to flourish as humanity, to provide food and to provide civilization. And so in those things being cursed, essentially we see uh, mankind in his inability to do, good, to do ultimate good when he desires to do so. And, and ultimately the question we had to ask was, if we were able to fix it, why wouldn't we have done it already? 
That is essentially the question that makes us aware of the curse. Especially you look at politicians and, and their, their utopian hopes for humanity. And, and politics are good. Politics are not wrong in and of themselves. But when you see uh, people taking on visions for redemption, uh, they're in the wrong field. And they're saying, you know, we're going to end human hunger. We're going to end human traffic. We're going to end all of these things. Uh, and, and the question is, if we've been trying for so long to do this, why haven't we already? And that's where the church has a, her, prof, her prophetic voice to say, we know the answer. Uh, you need to be redeemed by Christ in order that your politics will be right, in order that your economics will be right, in order that your uh, daycare service will be right, in order that everything will be right, you have to be redeemed by Christ. And so that was that question, and we saw how Messiah came and released us from the grip of Satan. Uh, John says in one of his uh, letters that Christ came, he appeared to destroy the works of Satan. In other words, the enslaving work of Satan and his dominion over the world, Messiah ended and crushed that when he died on the cross. And so we see how Messiah truly is the releaser of the people from captivity, and that is captivity to sin. But that begs another question. If we are released from our slavery to sin, who then will cleanse us from our guilt of sin. Who will cleanse us from our guilt? For it's one thing to be freed in order to do what is right, but who's going to deal with your past? Who's going to deal with the issues and the sins that you've already committed under your rebellion? And that's why when we go to court, when we see courtroom dramas unfold, whether you watch Judge Judy or something on TV, or you know personally somebody who's gone through the court system, it's not enough to sit there and say, well, I promise I'm going to do good from now on. That may be a wonderful thing. And we would we would love to see a commitment to do good works, but the court system deals with past sin, past crime, right? And as Christians, we are sort of in that same boat. When we are freed from Satan, we are freed to serve him, to serve the living God in a way that we'd never been able to before, but there still remains the issue of our guilt. What do we do about all of that time and rebellion to God? What does God do about that? And that's the question before us is who will cleanse us before God? Who will cleanse us before God? And so Luke uh, chapter 1 launches us into the quest to answer that question. I've got four headings. We're going to see the prophecy of forgiveness. We're going to see the promise of forgiveness. We're going to see the preparation for forgiveness. And we're going to see the performance of forgiveness. I don't often get all my points lined up like that, so please take notes this morning. But first we look at the prophecy of forgiveness, and we just read that in Luke chapter 1. This is Zechariah prophesying about the, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we kind of forget. We know Jesus came in Advent. He came as a child, and he grew up mighty in the Lord, and, and he went into public ministry. But there was a figure who appeared just before Jesus. Just before, it's almost like the dawn's early light. Before you see the sun come up over the horizon, first you see the light sort of flooding the landscape, right? You begin to see daylight before you see the sunrise. And that's the ministry of this one, John the Baptist. John the Baptist. And this prophecy is spoken by his father. And so it's important for us to pay attention to what is the forerunner of the Messiah's father saying about him. The prophecy here by Zechariah reveals another aspect of Messiah's work among his people. And he says it specifically down here in verse 75, 74 and 75, that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies, 
right? That's from enslavement to Satan, that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So those who were enslaved to sin obviously did not serve the living God, right? That, that was not an option. You, you can't serve the living God truthfully enslaved to sin. But what he adds here is an amazing clause that we might serve him without fear. How? What's our stance? What's our posture in that service? It says in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So the promise of redemption doesn't just free you to do good. It takes you and puts you in a state of holiness and righteousness, not before your priest or your pastor or your wife, but before the living God, the one who you cannot hide anything from. According to this prophecy, Messiah is going to free us from our enemies and then put us before God in holiness and righteousness. And it says later in, a, in another verse, it just down from that, it says that he will give knowledge of salvation to his people. In other words, he's going to tell people how to be saved. He's going to tell them how to receive salvation from the living God. And he says, in the forgiveness of their sins. And so there's this element of Messiah's ministry that we are going to be released to serve the living God, but that we are also going to be forgiven. That our past sin, our past rebellion is going to be pardoned. It is going to be wiped away. We are going to be washed, as it were, morally. He's going to grant the knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. That is to say that salvation, and and we, we speak about this a lot, but salvation is not just a vocational thing. It's not just, well, you were, you know, uh, a a dishonest lawyer, but now you're an honest lawyer. Or, you know, you weren't just a sinner and, and now you do less sin. Or now you're better equipped to be a politician. Salvation is not just vocational. It's not just, I used to do this and now I do this. Salvation is also a pardon for your sin. It's a forgiveness of your sin. And if you've ever been in a a relational um, conflict with somebody and it's because of something that you did, there's a guilt there, right, that you want to make right. And it doesn't matter how well the relationship goes on on the surface, if you don't know whether or not you're forgiven by them, it's hard to move on genuinely, right? Those words, I forgive you, are so healing. And according to the gospel, according to this prophecy, we will receive salvation from God through those words, I forgive you. I forgive you. So that's the gospel. That's part of Messiah's work. It's a pardon from our sin. And this is the prophecy uh, that came just before, that dawn's early light. Before Messiah came, there would be this prophet, John the Baptist. And he would go as that early light, just ahead of Jesus Christ, saying, you need to get ready for the sunrise. You need to get ready for the king. He is coming. And he says that, You need to do that according to the forgiveness of your sin. You need to be forgiven. And so that leads us to look back in our Bibles and see what precedent does this have? What basis did John the Baptist and his father have for promising forgiveness? We see that this is actually an ancient ancient promise. And we see this in Isaiah chapter 1. You can go there if you like, but otherwise you can just listen. Isaiah chapter 1, God utters this 
hundreds of years old prophecy in regard to, uh, in relation to John the Baptist. This is hundreds of years before. God says to his people Israel, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. This is the promise. Come now together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be... Uh, Uh, Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. So we have here an ancient promise that Zechariah's prophecy is perfectly in line with. This is a a promise that God had made through the prophet Isaiah, and, and Zechariah makes that clear according to the mouths of the holy prophets. You promised this salvation. This is one of those instances where that salvation was promised. This is, not just a, this is not just a new thing. This is not just a, a, a new promise out of the blue or, or in isolation. But God makes this promise uh, to Israel hundreds of years before, as I said, and they, they were participating in all these feasts, right? all these religious ceremonies, their new moon and their feasts and their, and their prayer and their incense. And God said, I'm hiding my eyes. I'm turning away. I'm not listening to you. And he says, why? Because you have blood on your hands. You are guilty sinners. I can't stand your false worship because you're hypocrites. You say you worship me, but your lives are full of sin. Does God always hear your prayers? Does God always listen to the prayers of people who are unrepentant? God says in his word, I will not listen. I will turn away. I will ignore you. My soul hates your worship. My soul hates your worship, he says. And yet in that same rebuke, One of the harshest against Israel in the Old Testament. One of the harshest rebukes they ever receive. In the same rebuke, God says to them, Now, come and reason with me, and I will transform your scarlet into wool. Though your sins are many, I will make them white like the snow. So in that same rebuke, God promises a future forgiveness. He promises a way that our sins can be removed. He promises a way that we can forget the evils of our past. But it's future tense. And so the question is, how how does Israel know when that's going to take place? How does Israel know that point at which God has turned and transformed their scarlet into snow? This is Israel going along in their, in their history as a nation. And God makes this promise and the, pro, uh, the prophet Isaiah speaks it to them. But at what point do you know that God has accepted you, that he has put behind himself your sin? <clears throat> this also begs the question, what gives God the right to come down on any people like this? <clears throat> we live in a very you know, so-called tolerant society in a tolerant globalist world. In fact, one survey showed there was a grade 10 classroom um, where in a, um, I believe it was, in Iran, it was either Iran or Pakistan, um, a very um, religiously devout family, not Christian, uh, who believes in, in, in punishing females for 
uh, for stepping out of line or for any kind of immoral, uh, immorality. The father had um, thrown acid in, the, in his teenage daughter's face and blinded her. In this grade 10 classroom, the majority of them, their answer to that was, well, I wouldn't personally do it, but who am I to say whether or not it's wrong? And this is sort of the society that we are raising our kids in. They, they have an inability to call evil, evil. And so when we look at this and God coming down on these people and saying, you know, your sins are so wicked, I'm turning away. It, it, it must almost ask us to beg, you know, who, who gives God the right to say that about us or any other nation, you know? They have their own ways of doing things. Maybe it's meaningful to them. But what we need to recognize here, and especially for Israel, is that God called them out in their father Abraham. He led them to a land. They grew in Egypt. They were enslaved. He freed them from Egypt. He protected them in the wilderness. He gave them a law and organized them. He gave them kings. He gave them judges. He gave them laws and ordinances for worship. In other words, God is the reason they exist as a nation. They are accountable to God. So when they step out of line as to what God has given them, God says, you are accountable to me. And friends, this is not just true about Israel. Romans chapter 1 says every man, woman, and child is accountable to God because he has placed us in his world. He has placed us in his moral universe, his good and ordered creation. That all creation tells about the divine power and eternal um, preeminence of God. And so human beings are accountable to God, all of us, not just Christians, not just those who have heard the gospel. Every person is accountable to God for his or her sins. This is not just a culturally isolated reality. And yet in line with God's rebuke of their sin, he says, I can transform you and I will transform you. And so from Isaiah chapter 1, when we see the ancient promise of forgiveness, we can jump back forward to Luke chapter 3. I hope you didn't go too far from that. Back to Luke chapter 3. This is where this promise is picking up. This is where this promise is being delivered. Luke chapter 3, verses 4 to 9. We have John the Baptist fully grown. He has now been sent out as a prophet into um, Israel. And in verse 4 in Luke chapter 3, it says that as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit, therefore, in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So not so much a seeker-sensitive church here. So the crowds come out to be baptized, and John calls them all a brood of vipers. That's not necessarily our welcome strategy here at Evergreen Chapel. But the message of the gospel includes this rebuke. John's words are not one breath out of line with the living God. 
We have to recognize that, friends. We have to try to stop dividing the word into mean people and nice people. This is the prophet, the forerunner of the Messiah. And his first public words to the crowds are, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, how did you get out here? What are you looking for? And so this is the forerunner of Messiah. This is how people are preparing to meet God's salvation. They have to run the gauntlet of repentance. There's only one simple response that mankind needs to prepare for the Messiah, and it's repentance. It's repentance. It's to turn away from sin. Zechariah, in two chapters earlier, when he's prophesying about his son, he speaks of salvation. He speaks of the knowledge of God's rushing salvation. And he speaks about that because his son would preach the way to salvation. Zechariah spoke about the salvation that was to come because his son would describe the road or the path to that salvation. As I said, these people are exactly in line. They can identify with the folks in Isaiah chapter 1. These are the same people living the same way. God said, I hate your feasts. John the Baptist said, you brood of vipers. They are under the same standing before God. God views them no differently at this point. There is hostility between God and them because of their willful sin. And I say willful because they had the law They knew the word of God. They had the prophets. There was no excuse for them to live these hypocritical, evil, corrupt lives. And so his instruction mirrors God's in terms of how to receive this salvation. In Isaiah chapter 1, God says, Cease evil, cleanse yourselves, make yourselves clean, and bear good fruit. Seek justice for the widow and safety for the oppressed. Protect the fatherless. Do good. In other words, turn away from your evil ways and seek to do good. That's what repentance means. It means a direction of your life turned and going the other direction. It's not just to stop sin. It's to stop sin and replace it with good works that God has given us to do. And so his instruction mirrors God's instruction to them in order to receive the blessing of God. And then God says, if you do that, come and reason, and I will make your scarlet sins as wool. I will make them white as snow. In other words, God demands repentance. He demands that in our moral accountability to him, we reject in our lives that which has rebelled against God, and we pursue that which is in line with him and his word. This is amazing. The crowds ask John the Baptist, they say, What then shall we do? He said, the axe is laid at the root of the tree, and any branch that does not bear good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. The threat could not be more clear. You are in trouble with God. You have a major issue with God, and unless something changes, you are in trouble. You have no hope. The axe is sitting there. He doesn't say the axe is in the back room. It's a little rusty. It needs some work, but eventually God's going to get around. He says, no, the axe is ready. He's holding it with one hand at the root of the tree, and he's about to chop it down. And so how do the people respond? What then shall we do? Tell us. 
Tell us, tell us what we have to do to spare us this tragedy, to spare us this destiny. What's the answer? You've probably all heard this. He answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is likewise uh, to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and they said, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. In other words, don't steal from people. Soldiers also came and asked him, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. In other words, to the soldiers, he said, don't abuse your power. Don't abuse or intimidate people in order to gain for yourselves. Stop doing evil. Repent of your sin. And then he says, seek to do good. Do what you are asked to do. Do what is right in the sight of God. And so John gives them the same answer. He says, you need to repent and then you need to bear good fruit. You need to change what your life is about and you need to pursue what is righteous. Now this is a very, uh, it's an anti-cultural theme in terms of the 21st century. We are much more prone to diagnose sin as an illness that, that we are helpless to change than we are to diagnose it as rebellion against God. The list of maladies in, in your doctor's textbook is growing and multiplying by the day because we are categorizing every form of sin as some form of illness. All over the world, people get off murder charges um, because they were high when they did it. They get off murder charges because uh, they were you know, diagnosed as some illness and there's no accountability. That's what our world is doing. Our world is moving away from repentance and towards medicine. Away from repentance and towards psychological treatment. Many murderers end up in psychological care facilities, often much more comfortable than the apartments they came from because of the view that our world has taken towards sin. This is an anti-cultural uh, statement that we are called as the church to believe in and repeat and act in ourselves, and that is to repent. But this, this is so key. We need to help people and ourselves be less surprised that God demands repentance and more surprised that he offers it. We need to be less surprised that God demands that we would repent and more surprised that he offers us the opportunity to do so. Isn't that amazing? Why do we live another day? People say, if there's a God, why does he allow evil to continue? Peter reminds us, one day is as a thousand to the Lord and vice versa. In other words, you don't know what God is up to and you should recognize that God is being patient towards sinners. He's giving them what? An opportunity to repent. And that includes you and me. And that includes the friend that you're witnessing the gospel to. Well, if I don't want to believe in a God who would allow evil. But you know what? The same God who allows the evils out there allows the evils in your own heart. Every breath that a sinner draws is grace and opportunity for repentance, for salvation. That's so key, friends. We, we need to not be surprised that God demands a moral standard because he is morally perfect. I have a much bigger problem that with a God who allows sin without judgment than I do a God who judges sin and eliminates it. Our God is just and he is good and he has given us opportunity to come to salvation. Now, let's talk about repentance for one more minute. We just read at the beginning of our service Psalm 51 and I want to highlight two parts of that verse. For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. 
This is David after he slept with another man's wife, got her pregnant, and then sent her husband to the front lines of the army so that he would die. So that David would have, this is, well, this is one of the, the most heinous sins committed in the Bible. And it was committed by a king of Israel, by a chosen one of God. You don't think David had some guilt about this. He had some issues about this. And he said, my sin is ever before me. There's another psalm that says, when I did not confess, my bones wasted away. Internalizing my sin was corrupting my flesh. I was, I, I, my, the, the, my tongue stuck to the roof of my mouth. My bones were wasting away. This is what it's like to hide sin in the heart. And then he writes this follow-up psalm where he says, I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Catch this. So that you may be blameless in your judgment. Do you know what that means? It means that when you repent, you are not telling God anything that he does not already know. Repentance is not disclosing your sin to God. He already knows. Repentance is when you come and you reason with God, like in Isaiah chapter 1. You come, you bring your sin to the table. God comes, he brings his holiness to the table. You reason together, and the conclusion is, I need to repent. That's how we reason with God. We repent. Repentance is you aligning your judgment about yourself with God's judgment about you. Repentance says to God, so that you may be blameless in your judgment. In other words, When I repent, I'm saying, I don't want to go toe-to-toe with God about who's right and who's wrong here. Repentance says, God, you are 100% right about me. I'm as evil as you say I am. David knew it. He said, when I confess, it's so that you may be vindicated, God, so that I am telling the world, God is right about me. God is right about me. I am a sinner. I am as bad as he says and worse. Another part of that prayer, which is mind-blowing to us, if you consider his sin, if you consider Bathsheba's mother, who had a son-in-law in Uriah, who was a commander of the armies, he was a good and honorable man, and the king of Israel sleeps with Bathsheba in his lust, gets her pregnant, and then sends the son-in-law off to the front lines of battle so that he will die, so that he will not inconvenience David in his sin. This is David just covering up his sin. And this is when he spoke about his bones wasting away. If you think about Uriah's mother or Bathsheba's mother, listening to this prayer of David, David has the audacity to pray, blot out my transgression. Erase it. Cast it away, God. The audacity for somebody to pray that their sin would be forgotten when it has affected so many people. This prayer foresees an unprecedented display of justice and forgiveness put on by God. That's what this prayer foresees. It foresees a once in all of history display of justice and redemption and forgiveness all in the same place by God. What is it that David foresaw when he prayed, blot out my transgression? He looked ahead to the performance of forgiveness. The performance of forgiveness. Well, you know where I'm going with this. Who would perform this forgiveness? We have a story of 
the Messiah when he was fully grown and in public ministry and he was teaching in a house. And the house was so crowded that people were blocking the entrances and the crowds were out in the driveway and the front lawn and no one could even get in a window. And there was a sick man who couldn't walk and his friends busted a hole in the roof of the house. Poor homeowner. And, and, the, and, and, and they dropped him down because they knew that Messiah was healer. And then Jesus said to him, My son, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. This is the performance of forgiveness. My son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. What does blaspheming mean? It means to lower God. It means to act like God is not significant. The, the scribes looked on and they knew very well and very accurately that only God can forgive sin. Who has the right to forgive David of all of his sins? Who has the right to forgive you of your sin against God? There's only one. And that's why David prays, against you and you only have I sinned, O God. In other words, your, my relationship with you is the one relationship that truly matters in terms of if I'm going to survive eternity, if I'm going to survive judgment, I need to be right before God. Now, that doesn't minimize becoming right with people, but forgiveness with God is the source of being forgiven by others. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But what these scribes knew is that God alone can forgive sins. Who can say your sin against God is, is not important or it has passed? But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? This is a master moment from our Lord. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? In other words, you guys are smart. Any one of you could say your sins are forgiven. Who would know if you're lying? You'll be long dead before anyone figures out that you were wrong. So Jesus says, which is it? Which is easier to say? I could just stand here and say your sins are forgiven all day long. Or to say, get up and rise. To make a paralyzed man walk. And he says, so that you will know that I have the, forgiven, the authority to forgive sins. He says to the man, rise. Pick up your bed and go home. In other words, you already get it. You can go home. These guys need to stay for another lesson. And he rose and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. Because they recognized they were standing in the presence of Almighty God. The God who promised that their sins would be transformed from scarlet to wool was standing in front of them in the Messiah. This man can forgive sins. This man is God. He has the power over creation. Later in John 3.16, Jesus in that famous passage said, For God so loved the world that he sent his Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Very famous verse, but we, we forget these key verses after. In, in 17 and 18, Jesus also said, For the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And then he said this, Those who do not believe are condemned already because they do not believe in him who God sent. And so God says through Christ, I am forgiving the world. I am pardoning sin. Jesus also said to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus pr proved over and over and spoke over and over that in him and in him alone could sins finally be forgiven. Think about the thief on the cross. 
There was two. One of them mocked Jesus, and the other one said, don't you understand that we are getting what we deserve? We're sinners. But here is the Lord God Almighty on the cross, and don't you fear him? And then that thief said to the Lord, he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus did not say, let me go check with God. Let me see if you're on the list. Jesus said to him in his moments, in his final moments, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Christ had the authority to forgive sin. It's unmistakable in the scriptures. Jesus did not have a secondary or delegated authority from God. He was God Almighty in the flesh, in the Son. In other words, Jesus was saying to Israel, I am the place that you can find safety. If you want to know when God is going to pardon you, come to me. I'm the safe place for repentance. I'm the place that you can find a pardon for your sin. And the thief understood so well that our sin deserves death. Our sin deserves justice. Our sin deserves a penalty. Our sin deserves a response from God. And friends, this is why Christianity has an answer for the problem of evil. Christianity is not a free-for-all. Well, God's not concerned about sin anymore. He accepts you the way you are. And you don't have to change. Sin's not a big deal. The, the Christian narrative does not say that. It says that when you come to Christ, God is just with your sin. Because he sent his son, his perfect son, the eternal son of God, and he put him on a cross and he poured out his own justice against sin onto that man in your place. Every sin you ever commit, every sin you will commit, the sins that you commit this afternoon were thought of and considered and punished in Christ on your behalf. God showed perfect justice in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3 says, In God's wisdom, he is the just and the justifier. At the same time, God can show perfect justice against sin, perfectly punishing every evil because of how good Jesus Christ is. And at the same time, he can justify you. He can let you walk free, having righteously punished your sin on his son and pardoning you. Messiah is the pardon for sin. So how do we deal with this in the real world? Why, don't, why doesn't everybody do this? Why doesn't everybody just respond? Why doesn't everybody just repent and say, I, I want to be forgiven? Well, I can get forgiven just by coming to Christ and confessing? Yes, you can. Why doesn't everybody do it? Do you struggle with that? Do you str why? Why? I've told them over and over again, it's simple. It's by faith. You don't rest in your own works anymore. You can have knowledge of salvation. Why don't people come? In that same passage in John chapter 3, Jesus tells us why they don't come. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. You want to know why people don't come to Christ? Why people don't receive this free gift? This is why. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than light. It's desire. People don't want the light. They don't want, and Jesus says explicitly why. They like the darkness rather than the light because the light will expose their evil works. 
That's why. Because Jesus is light. There's no such thing as coming to Christ and not having your sin exposed. You cannot come to Christ and pretend like sin never happened. John, that same author, later when he wrote a letter, he said, if we say we have no sin, we are liars. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive. There is no profit to hiding your sins, my friends. This is both a message of salvation and it's a a message of how to walk today. Don't hide your sin. So many of us are afraid to confess our sin because we're afraid of the consequence. Well, our eternal consequence is already known. We have eternal life in Christ. So we as Christians ought to be the most repentant, confessing, transparent people on earth. We ought to show the world this is what it's like to confess. Even if you've committed a sin that you deserve jail for, you can go to jail as a Christian and, de- and demonstrate to the world that I deserve this, but my Father has forgiven me because Christ took the ultimate punishment for my sin. Christians ought to demonstrate the way to salvation through our own repentance and humility. Jesus said they won't come because their sin will be exposed and they don't want that. How can the son forgive? How can he release us from our guilt for rapists, abusers, murderers, swindlers? How can he do all that? Because he became sin for us on the cross. He became your sin so that in him we could receive the promise of Isaiah 1 that we could trade our scarlet sins for wool, garments of righteousness. When we come and reason with the Lord, and I would just substitute reason for repent, We come to the table with the Lord and we say, your judgment trumps all, dear Lord. I am a sinner before you and I confess my sin. And God releases us. He says, then I will wash you. I will cleanse you. Hebrews chapter 9, I think my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. Hebrews chapter 9 says, So Christ, having been once offered to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Friends, you have no fear of Christ coming back. Romans chapter 8 says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. So when Christ comes, we can eagerly and excitedly wait for him when he comes in all of his holy wrath against sin. We have, we're excited about that. Because we know that our sin has been dealt with. When Jesus comes a second time, he's not coming to deal with your sin. He's already done that on the cross. He's coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's his church. Those are his people. Isaiah 55, and I close with this. God says later in that same book in Isaiah, this is the gospel, by the way. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he might have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon him. Our God is a merciful God. He receives those who come to him in humility. This is the gospel for you. This is the gospel for your neighbors, my friends. Let's close in prayer and we'll have a a final song.